May the peace of Christ be with you. This is Molly Vetter, Senior Pastor of the Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Welcome to our Sanctuary Gathering podcast. Here we share the sermon preached on Sunday as a part of our Sanctuary Gathering. We hope that in these words you will be drawn closer to God and made more ready to love your neighbor. As a congregation, we embrace the words of the Hebrew prophet that are etched into the stairs that lead to our building, the calling to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We also believe that we're a richer congregation for the diversity of people who participate in our community, and we celebrate the diversity of age, race, gender identity, and sexual orientation that participate in our church. You are welcome in this place, and we hope you will participate. We invite you to do your own theology, to wrestle with questions of faith as we seek out what it means to be faithful Christians today. You're welcome to join us not only by listening in to this podcast, but we also invite you to join in our congregational life. Every Sunday, you're welcome to join us for worship at 9.30 a.m. You can join us in our beautiful sanctuary in Los Angeles at the corner of Warner and Wilshire or online via our church Facebook page. All are welcome in our midst, and we thank you for being a part of our church. May these moments be a blessing to you today. Good morning, everyone. Today's uh, Old Testament reading is from 2 Kings 2, 1 to 12. It's a familiar passage, and I will start now. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The company of prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. For the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elisha took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water. The water was parted to the one side and to the other until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. 
As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading today is the story of transfiguration as told in Mark's gospel in chapter 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared with them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus, As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? O holy God, may my words and our thoughts and our lives reflect the fullness and beauty of your grace. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Last Sunday evening, I tuned into the Grammy Awards, and my heart was moved uh, by the music. In particular, the moment when Tracy Chapman appeared alongside Luke Combs to sing her song, Fast Car, in duet. I was a fan of Tracy Chapman in my childhood. It was one of the cassettes I owned and listened to on repeat. I think it was one of the first CDs my family owned that self-titled album on which Fast Car was recorded, which became a hit, occasioned her singing it at the Grammys something like 35 years ago. The same song, 35 years later, has been at the top of country charts this year, sung by a white man from the South who sings country music named Luke Combs. And the first time I heard it on the radio, I was a little confused, um, delighted to hear a song that had come back, sort of wondering How do I feel about a song that belonged so distinctly in the voice of a queer black woman 35 years ago, now sung by someone else? But the way they sang together at the Grammys was for me one of those moments where I was blessed by music that showed me a vision of what's possible in God, a vision of unlikely pairs coming together, connecting about humanity and the struggle of living delighting in the gift that is music to give voice that helps us be more human. And in that moment, as they sang this duet, I felt a sense of possibility, community, that we don't have to engage the challenges of life. The challenges is the song voices of poverty that is inescapable, alone, that there's some way it could connect together. 
The way that Luke Combs looked at Tracy during the song, mouthing the words even when he wasn't singing at the microphone, the appreciation of an artist whose shoulders he stands on, whose beautiful music he now sings was, was lovely. It was a moment of balm, like a cool glass of water on a hot day, a moment of embodied hopefulness. Of course, it doesn't solve the reality of challenges we face as we navigate a world where institutionalized racism persists, where prejudice against queer folks continues to find legal standing even in our own country and also in our churches. Those realities continue. Sexism is real. But for just that moment... For just that moment, I caught a glimpse of what's possible. I think it's not entirely unlike the sort of revelation that's in this story we share on Transfiguration Sunday, a mysterious, wondrous, beautiful, visible proclamation of God's glory, which is one of the reasons that I come to church, and I love that it's at the center of our window because we get to remember it every Sunday, that there is here among us a God who shows up, who shows us what's possible, who gives us glimpses of what's in some ways already fully true in the salvation of Jesus Christ, and yet also requires our labor to become more fully true as we try to be a people who overcome oppression, who push back against prejudice, who build systems that support what Martin Luther King Jr. called beloved community. On that Transfiguration Day, Jesus and those disciples hiked up a holy mountain, which is holy in religious traditions that have long lived in that part of the world, and also holy because it being the literal place of the source waters for the Jordan River, a river of, of course, sacred significance and also practical necessity for the peoples of the area. On top of that holy mountain, these disciples and Jesus experienced a moment of transcendence when Jesus became visibly marked by the glory of God. And there were clouds and a voice from the heavens that repeated the same words that we heard at Jesus' baptism at the beginning. Familiar words that will be echoed again after Christ's death in preparation for resurrection as we appreciate and notice and know that this is indeed the Son of God Here in the middle of the story, in the middle of our window, we have a voice from the heavens declaring, this is my son, the beloved. And then the voice from heaven adds, listen to him. I don't know in what tone. In fact, in the scriptures that we read today, there are several phrases that I really would like to hear the tone of voice used when they're spoken. Listen to him is one of those that you can say with appreciation or frustration. As Jan was reading this beautiful passage from 2 Kings, as Elisha was told again and again that this was 
going to be the moment when Elijah exited the stage, he says, what does he say? Keep silent, I know. He says shut up, right? What, what, what are the, I know what you're saying, keep quiet. But it sounds very formal in this particular English translation. The same words your grandmother might have said with simply hush. <laughs> shut up, more common. A invitation to enter into this story not with the formality of elegant liturgical language, but the real voices of our lives. I don't think y'all are people who say shut up a lot. I don't mean to put that on you. But I do think it's important to hear these stories in voices that sound like how we talk to each other, not just how we refer about holy other things. In this moment of transfiguration that Jesus shares with his disciples there on the mountaintop, there is an entirely different sensibility, a pervasive holiness that makes this a moment of wonder, a moment unlike most others, a moment marked by the kind of transcendence and mystery that animates our lives and stories and gives us strength in the ordinary. But the point of this moment of transcendence, of glory, of Jesus' transfiguration, the reason for this moment of numinous encounter is so that we can live our lives, so that we can persist in the ongoing work. Our um, United Methodist Church, as you know, has been in the midst of significant turmoil and transition in a season of institutional fighting, largely on the surface about our understanding of human sexuality and our inclusion of gay and lesbian people in leadership in the church and the blessing of same-sex marriages in our churches. Although those are the specific laws, rules on our books, but it expands to incorporate a whole raft of concerns because we in communities, especially in the U.S., but also elsewhere around the world, are trying to understand how we live together as a community across diversities we not previously had words to describe. In this moment of division, as you may have heard, there are a significant number of churches, congregations that have left the Institutional United Methodist Church, disaffiliating from the whole of the body, almost universally, but not quite, uh, churches who are frustrated that even though we have anti-gay rules, we have not enforced them. So conservative churches frustrated with the church's inability to live into its laws. We got to this situation in part because in 2019, we had a special meeting of the church that was hoped to settle this significant tension and disagreement in the church, but instead of a compromise that might have more easily in our rules allowed us to abide together, the church decided to double down not only maintaining exclusions, but creating new systems for enforcing them. This was disheartening, I know, to this congregation. This was just before I was appointed here as your pastor and to many others. 
It was a moment where the church made a decision that seemed so deeply out of sync with how we've been practicing United Methodism in this place and who we want to think of ourselves, how we want to think of ourselves. But in a strange way, in the years since 2019, although our rules on the books still require or ask for enforcement of exclusion, in a more broad and more significant way, United Methodists across the U.S. to a large extent and even more around the world as well have refused to do this. The church has decided we have no interest in prosecuting and persecuting gay and lesbian clergy and excluding same-sex couples from marriage in our churches. More congregations than ever before have come out declaring that they believe and practice otherwise. So although the law of the church became more rigid and exclusionary, the practice of the church shifted more explicitly toward inclusion. This is what's precipitated uh, departures from the denomination, disaffiliations. Amongst those disaffiliating, many have formed a particular new denomination called the Global Methodist Church, and maybe half of the disaffiliating churches have just gone independent or formed other small networks of churches. The churches that have exited the denomination, some of them have spread wild untruths about who the United Methodist Church is. And in pushing back against that, I got to be a part of some conversations about how we present ourselves as a denomination. And the insight from talking to smart people at ad agencies and leaders in the church is that the way to push back is to simply go deep in knowing who we are and what we're about. To reaffirm the identity and values that not only separate us from policies of exclusion, but that animate us toward the love of God. Things like our shared experiences of grace and of God that happened in and through church community. Things like the power and capacity of us as an institution together to work for good in the world, whether it's providing assistance after disasters or pushing forward ideas about the dignity and rights of women and children or working against malaria or finally catching up uh, and leading in work related to relief after AIDS, pushing forward ideas about the need to be active in a moment where our planet is in peril and the reality of climate change can't be ignored. We have a power to do more together. We have influence and connection and impact. This is energizing to us. It makes us want to do these things. One of the values that was named by our institutional church, a foundational and formational value, is that we value diversity and inclusion. And I remember being a part of conversations where we were talking about this reality and also tension. Right? Because at the same time we say we value diversity, we have explicit exclusions that are still on our rule book that we've even recently added to. What does it look like to be a people who say we value diversity at the same time that our rules say otherwise? I remember lots of conversations with a particular professional in the PR world who said over and over again, communications 
can't solve operational problems. Communications can't solve operational problems. And I said, yes, but I'm a preacher. I believe that communications are a way that we proclaim into the world the thing that we are becoming, that we identify and envision and taste and know what's possible in God, that communications, traditionally named as proclamation in our order of worship, communications, our art and our music and our sermons and our prayers— even music that appears on a Grammy telecast, these communications help us believe in what we're becoming. Not because we're already there, but because we need this vision, this interpretation, this articulation in order to know where to go, what we're becoming. It's um, problematic because sometimes it feels hypocritical to preach a thing knowing that we still have work to do. And this is always the risk of anyone who's working for change and transformation in their lives and the world. And sometimes it becomes a paralyzing hindrance to our beginning the project of our own transformation. When we become aware of an obstacle or block within us, that prevents us from seeing the fullness of God's image in someone else, and we know that we need to change, it feels dangerous to take that first step out because as soon as we say or share that we're working on it, someone else is going to see a place where we have some distance yet to go, where we're still getting it wrong. You say you want to care about the environment, but you still use single-use plastics at the grocery store, and so obviously you're a hypocrite. The problem is, All of us are eternally on the process of perfection. There are things we're going to get wrong in our journey to what God wants for us, and we cannot use that as an excuse to not start taking steps forward toward greater embodiment and understanding. And on this day of transfiguration, whenever we come together in worship, a part of what we do is set before us the vision as we're best able to see it down the line of who we are becoming. And the gift of belonging in Jesus Christ is that we also believe it's who we already are. So while the institutional church has been resistant to fully affirming the calling and gifting of gay and lesbian leaders to ordained ministry in the church, we have seen and do know the gifting that we have seen in our midst as gay and lesbian leaders lead in our congregation and elsewhere. Although the church has been reticent to clearly articulate any kind of understanding of a blessing of marriage for same-sex couples, we have seen and know the gift that same-gender couples play in our community. We cannot control the call or blessing of God. It is already there because of who God is and how God works. We can only control how we receive it. In that way, the vision that we look forward to Uh, Jesus glowing on the mountaintop, is already here in our midst. There's no failure 
of ours or the institution that takes away the true reality of Jesus' glowing, glorious presence on that mountaintop, or in the same way of the Holy Spirit's gifting and blessing of each one of us as people who bear the divine image, as people in whom God is present and through whom God is speaking a particular word to the world. There is nothing we can do that changes God's gifting and blessing. God's blessing on the lives of people, marriages that are same gender, other relationships that the institution has not yet built a category for, the fact that we have not come up with the words to describe or a category to name, a blessing of relationship does nothing to change the Holy Spirit's gift in blessing that connection, that relationship, and that community. And so today, on this Transfiguration Sunday, we hold this all together. So I was watching Tracy Chapman and Luke Combs sing together at the Grammys. I was thinking about the tension between each of their identities and the overlapping identities on a prophet poet, songwriter like Tracy Chapman in our midst, who as a black person, a woman, a queer-identifying human, has these overlapping identities that often, I expect, have prevented her from experiencing the fullness of life that might otherwise be more accessible or available. The realities of those overlapping oppressions from overlapping identities is the sort of thing that uh, black legal leader Kimberly Crenshaw named back in 1989 as intersectionality. It's become a buzzword in culture wars as people push back against anything that helps us know and describe our call to be more considerate of the realities we experience. When Kimberly Crenshaw first articulated this and it languished sort of in the legal world, I won't say languish, it functioned in a specific sphere for decades before it became a hot word in public conversation. When she first articulated it, she was trying to describe how the law uh, benefits us all when it helps interpret that, for example, the experience of discrimination that a black woman might have is both racism and sexism, that they overlap. And if you're trying to use the law to build a case for understanding that discrimination, it's most effective to be able to honor this intersection and overlap. That's a a relatively simple concept that even those who are waging a culture war today acknowledge is in a sort of basic way true. It's the implications of that that become disturbing to our ways of being in the world. On Transfiguration Sunday, Jesus is one who has overlapping and intersecting identities. 
This has been a point of theology and doctrine in the church since the beginning that we have struggled and debated about, but also clearly affirmed and articulated Jesus being both fully human and fully divine, two very different and in some ways, in some ways of thinking of the world, opposing identities that are held together in him. There is this intersection and overlap. And in the moment of transfiguration, that holy identity, the fullness of his divinity, becomes visibly and audibly clear, but it is no less real in all the other moments. It just helps us see and know. As I was thinking about this Transfiguration Sunday, I was thinking also about the transformation it works in our hearts and lives and world when we see and believe the glory of God in others around us, and in all creation, a change that is significant, a transformation. I was thinking about transfiguration and transformation. I was thinking about transcendence, and I started to see all these trans words coming together in a moment of this Sunday. The root trans literally means on the other side, inviting us to think about something that is not just what you see on one side, but something also over there, deeper, also true. In our own moment, when we talk about trans things, we can't do so without talking about the lived experience of transgendered siblings in our midst, the way this articulation and description of a human identity has pushed up against the categories that felt comfortable for most of us, but forced us to see in a different and deeper way something that's real and true about humans as we have a new vocabulary that helps us understand not only people who were assigned a gender at birth that is not a match to how they understand themselves, but also by understanding and listening to the experience of trans siblings in our midst, we come to rethink and see more clearly the seemingly tidy categories we operated with, which may have been and continue to be a restriction on our full experience of how God appears in the world. I believe that affirming and celebrating the presence of trans siblings in our church is good not only because it corresponds to our value on diversity and inclusivity, but because it helps us see and know more about who we are and who God is in our midst. Our salvation becomes more clear and more real when we listen to and learn from those whose lives are different. When This is speaking for myself. I have learned and grown from people when, when I listen to lives, people whose lives are different from my own. I don't want to speak about them as if they're not us because we are a church together and our community includes people who can offer this wisdom to us, who bring the gift of their being to help us see and know God more clearly. 
as I've been thinking about and preparing for our next General Conference of the United Methodist Church, which will convene in April, I have been trying to find words to describe how deeply I believe this, that that our descriptions have fallen short as we've talked about a value on inclusion and diversity because we've been led to speak about it in a way that makes it seem like it's us allowing those people a privilege or to stay. As if we're, as it's characterized from those opposed to it, accommodating ourselves to a culture. I believe that our continued expansion of our understanding of humanity and who we are as individuals and as the body together, that this is critical for our understanding of who God is and that we are selling ourselves short. We are falling short of the call of the gospel to receive the glory of God whenever we exclude people because of their identity. This matters not only, although it matters significantly, for the harm that it causes to people who identify as trans in our world. I believe it also matters for those of us who claim the power of the Holy Spirit to call unexpected people, to unite us in a church that is the body of Christ in which all barriers are broken down, in which we come to understand the power of grace, the power of the love of God in Jesus Christ that nothing can separate us from. The whole of our message is hindered by a church that draws lines that exclude, by a church that draws lines that cast out And our full apprehension, experience, glory, wonder, and appreciation of the power of God depends on our daring to see and receive something that looks impossible and improbable and also as a glorious gift. May we be people ready to look on the other side, to listen for a proclamation of grace, to speak up for the cause of those who've been cast out to see and believe the wonder of God here in our very midst. May it be so. Amen.